I'm Anushka Astana and this is Today in Focus. We're bringing you general election coverage every day from Hartlepool. I mean the government talk about left behind towns and left behind places and actually that presupposes they were ever at the same starting point. To Belfast. I'm old enough to remember getting on the bus and them coming on with sniffer dogs to find out if there were bombs under the seats. We're talking to people and not just politicians to really get to the heart of this election. Subscribe now wherever you download your podcasts. On the Marie Curie couch is the new thought-provoking podcast opening up conversations about death and dying. I only in the darkest of moments would imagine what life would be like without her. Marie Curie expert Jason Davidson chats to a host of well-known guests about their experiences and how they feel about their own mortality. People do struggle to get their heads around the fact that it's not curable. That's On the Marie Curie Couch, available now. I've said it before and I'll say it again because I believe it. Otamare Guobadia is the James Baldwin of our generation. His writing is searing, prescient, and beautiful, striking at the heart of issues we battle with every day. He's also a friend and confidant, and I hold him in the highest of esteem, so I understand if my estimations sound a little grandiose. Our conversation is one of hyper-masculinity, the boundaries of our queerness and hope and love and romance. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Otamare Let's start with Baby Tam. Oh God, what was ba- Baby ta- Baby Tam? Baby Tam. What's your earliest memory? My earliest memory. Um. Okay. So. I remember watching Rugrats on television when it was um, still brand new. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember getting in trouble because I took a photo on like one of those like cameras, which at the time was quite fancy. One of the like, you know, 35 millimeter, like yeah. <laughs> Olympus style, like yeah. slab and shoots, which is quite fancy. Um, and I remember lying. I, I honestly think I remember the first lie I ever told. Really? Yeah. I put some toy handcuffs on that came with like some toys I got and I lied that they, and like, I swallowed the key and then I lied that the key had jumped into my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I actually think that that might be the first lie I ever told. I need to write, I need to that work that into my autobiography. Automatically just on jumped their own. into your mouth. I'm sure there's something, I'm sure there's something profound to be gleaned from, from that lie. Well, the first thing I thought of was. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you fucking dare. <laughs> I thought not dissimilar to now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus! Take the wheel. Um, and so you said you grew up in California. How long were you there for? Um, four or five years, I think. Mm. I had an American accent until I was five, probably. Really? Yeah, vocal fry. I and was what a, took I you was to a California? California girl. I think my parents were young. They were like newlywed. They were still relatively newlyweds, right? They just had my sister, and they just had me. And I think that they just, you know, travel while you can. I think was there. I think they wanted to. I think my dad went to UCLA for a bit, did like a master, did another, I think did like another master's at UCLA because I think he already had one. And just, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what, maybe one day I will ask them what spurred them to just move to America. But I think that maybe it was just the American dream. And do you think there was anything, do you think there was anything formative in those, in those years, those five years spent in California? Absolutely. There's a short story I wrote called Butterscotch, which, um, um, 
And I feel like I've been playing. I've been playing a lot with um, memory or the way in which we we um, reinvent our memories. And I think about some of my earliest memories, including like the lie that I told then, and um, strawberry punch. Like I remember the taste of this like California mini mart strawberry punch, like it was yesterday. Really? And I remember the shelves being stacked high with strawberry punch. And I just remember like the overwhelming like simplicity of those days. And I compare that to now, to the to the chaos of now. And yeah, I think that, I don't know, I think that everything happened then, um, very much down to like a trolley that rolled off a supermarket shelf and hit me in the head. Everything has set the stage for everything that's happened now, right? There's the butterfly effect, you know. Butterfly flapped its wings in a supermarket and I am here now in front of this microphone. A hurricane. That, yeah. <laughs> that's mm. yeah I don't take any of that for granted so yeah, well, I, I, yeah I'm curious because you have quite a tight grip on the on Americana right on being mm. able to describe it and to bring that to bring Americana to life when you write and yeah I, I mean so I think and I, I was thinking about this recently because I love Lana Del Rey right? mm. I love Lana Del Rey and I was tweeting and I was re-watching the ride video because it's like it's like 10 minutes long it's ridiculous it's 10 minutes long it starts off with like a sort of spoken word um poem set to like some music and it's like it's very okay so what i think what this is what i think americana is and this is what i think that i'm able to reproduce and i think that lana del rey has mastered this right so americana is an aesthetic misremembering of a history of violence i think that that's like a pretty succinct way that's the way i put it anyway it's an aesthetic um it's an aesthetic misremembering of a history of violence. And I think that Lana Del Rey has um, done this so masterfully, right? It's a, it's, it's a way of putting together... And, it's, and I call it a misremembering because the history of America has always been a history of violence. Mm. Um, but you can, um, you can rose tint that. You can, um, you can add gloss to that. And that, that is effectively what um, Lana Del Rey does. And what I probably do... Um, sometimes when I when I claim to remember things, is I deliberately misremember them because um, I think that that is the only way with which we can reckon with the past. Most times, I think that for mm. Lana Del Rey, that's how she reckons with the past, right? But also, Americana is decidedly whitewashed, isn't it? It is. It, it is incredibly so, right? Like this video is um, a collage of references, right? It's a collage of the most American, but most white American references, right? You know, like Lana Del Rey, like with the American flag, wearing, like, a Native American headdress, like, with, like, all of these biker daddies that are, like, ODing in the background while she dances around, like, a bonfire. She's in her white dress. It is, like, it is... And it's referential, but also it borrows heavily from, like, like Nabokov and, like, Lolita. And it's, like, it's all of these... Um, these stolen American, the, 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 the artifacts that have been become embedded in American culture, but effectively they are stolen artifacts, right? Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think that... Which I, makes sense, right? Yeah, it does. It does make sense. <laughs> it actually right? kind of solidifies is, the authenticity of Americana, be, exactly. precisely because it's built up of things yeah. that have been stolen. And it's a, it's a, it's a collage. And I think that it's a, I think, and perhaps I'm doing Fitzgerald ill will, and maybe even Landauer ill will. But it's a collage of references, which actually is at its most barefaced meaning. There's no, there's not actually any deeper, deeper right, meaning. There's right, no symbolism. Right, right. It is, it is. 
a collage of references that advance the narrative in front of you. And, and I was trying to trying to explain this the other day on Twitter. I'm not even sure if it is a narrative. It's advancing. It's advancing an effect. It's advancing an effect, yeah, much like a mist or a haze. Yeah. It's, it's not actually <clears throat> telling a story in that way. It's conjuring up a feeling. It's yeah. conjuring up emotions. Yeah, um, like I literally just like went dancing a bonfire. Exactly, <laughs> right. right? That's it. That's it. Um, I, I, yeah, I feel like all of my all of my work is like... Um, all of my work is trying to bridge that gap between, and I think that a lot of, and this is something I was thinking about the other day. Um, I I was reading about like, oh god, my suit, my brain is already splintering off. I was reading, I I was reading <laughs> about like, you know, how like taxonomies of like magic and how people like think about magic, right? Um, and I think about, um, so there's the magic of contagion, which is um, two objects which have mingled with each other will continue to affect each other at a distance so that's how like voodoo mm. and like fetishes work and like items like um yeah and things like that right um there is um sympathetic magic which is um so like which is also again partly i mean voodoo dolls are a combination of sympathetic and contagious magic but yeah there's a sympathetic magic which says that well like, like things that resemble other things can act upon other things right um so mm. voodoo doll mm. josh mm. rivers Josh Rivers, right? Um, plenty of, <laughs> someone, plenty yeah, of pins. As, as someone wonderful, rather wonderfully said on Twitter, like, can anyone who has my voodoo doll please put some Fenty Beauty on it? Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just sure somewhere out there has a fucking voodoo doll. Okay, no. And then there are magical words. And I was thinking about this, like, why, what words aren't magical, right? Like, all speech is incantation. Like, if you think about this, the words I'm saying now produce an effect in the world um, which is to either, and the words that we say to other people produce and say it put into the world, create this effect where they either pull things towards us or push them away from us or create something in the world. Like if you're in love with someone and they use the exact right words, mm. they can make like your skin bubble and can like, give you goosebumps. Is that not like a kind of magic? Um, and so I think that when I write, what I'm trying to do is bridge that gap between the world as it is. So the factual world, if there is such a thing, and the world as I want it to be, right? Mm. Um, which is why I think that even when I write about the terrible things that have happened to me or the terrible things that I feel, the terrible things that have happened in the world, um, and it's and that's something that I sometimes refer to as trauma theater. So, for example, if I mm. if I if like I'm harassed on the street and I write about it, like there's like almost like a formula, right? Like illusion, like parallel exposition, like metaphor. You make it, you gloss it, you make it really, really beautiful. Yeah. Um, mm. But then that is a misremembering of violence. <laughs> yeah, because you might not have ever used the words you used to recall that. Yeah, that, no, that yeah, no, but also just like, and I think it's so, I think it's, I think it's, it's beautiful and terrible. And yes, I think it's a coping mechanism for people. But why do we, I know that I do it. I know that like Sean Fay does it, Tra, like Travis does mm -hmm. it, like all of these people, when we remember the thing, it's, it's so hard to, I think it's so hard to remember the terrible things that have happened to you without making them sound in some way beautiful if you're a, if you're like a skilled enough writer, I suppose. Um, and I think that that's, that's a real challenge, right? People fetishize the suffering of artists in a way that I find just so wild. Oh like, yeah, Travis speaks about that. Yeah, and people, and isn't that so cruel to think that people believe that that the price of good art must be suffering. Uh, like 448, yeah. like 448 by Sarah Kane, I think 
has some of the most beautifully painful lines in like English literature. But the price of that was that was Sarah Kane's suicide letter in effect. She was dead within a year. Right. Um, I think she might have died before before the first before it was ever shown. Um, and can the price of is that a price worth paying? I'd much rather be happy and create no art. Um, then be unhappy and create beautiful art. I don't think that the purpose of life is necessarily um, that. No, yes, I, this agree. Was, this was I agree. Quite the tangent I spun off in time. No, I like I it like because it, it opens up a lot. It opens up a lot. It, it one makes me wonder what happened and how have you how have you spun that into gold? I feel like, uh, or maybe it's not a singular event. No, no, so, no. It's exactly that's what I think. It's what, I don't think it's a singular event. I think what happened is what's still. Um, happening now I, I I don't know I don't think that the word violence is cheapened by our using it all the time I suppose that like or maybe not even necessarily trauma I just, th- I just think it, I think I wrote recently um, in this this I, w- I wouldn't even call it an angry polemic I think it was just tired I think this was after this group of men tried to like um, tried to beat me up in the street recently I say beat me up I mean I I mean, also, I mean, again, even yesterday, I was with my friend walking out of, um, we were walking down this street and these group, this group of men, this group of like um, rather angry men, like were like yelling behind us for us to like stop and come back. I think, I think that like, obviously they wanted an altercation of some sort, but there was no provocation, right? Of course. But then I say that there was no provocation, but I think that, um, I think that everything that I do the way that I choose to adorn this body to them is provocation. So um, it wasn't entirely without merit. Um, I suppose that like there are some things that I just no matter what I can't hide. You know that the like the like my gait, my my the effectness, the the glamour maybe even you could yeah. say. <laughs> but you, I just it doesn't get turned off very easily. I think even in sweatpants and a t-shirt, I think that I still convey something. Yeah, palpably. no, what you're wearing now, and I'm yeah, like, I'm how wearing, you, yeah, how I'm wearing running shoes that? like a straight person, right? <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know. Uh, for listeners, Otamari is wearing a pair of baggy black sweatpants, black running shoes, and a black turtleneck, and still, still look like a faggot. <laughs> I know, <laughs> still look like a faggot. Anyway, um, but, but yeah, I was I- gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> still looks say? better than me at my best so no, i don't know how it, it, i think it's the it's it's so funny what people see right which we ultimately can't really be concerned with otherwise we drive ourselves crazy and i think perception is an interesting is an interesting thing to discuss because you said that um that perhaps what their provocation had some merit right as if it's your fault that they're dealing with some sort of um, internalized homophobia or misogyny or sexism or what have you, you know, whatever causes these things. They're, they're struggling within their spaces and so project that outwards. So it, to me, it doesn't have any merit. But then also when I see you, I see freedom and beauty and intellect and romance. And so it's it's just fascinating to me that you, and not surprising, but fascinating, that you at once have this experience whereby you're walked and degraded or denigrated or diminished or what what have you and on the other absolutely revered and adored i, I find that that duality to our lives yeah quite I, fascinating that tension between um the glamour of my personal life and the ways in which i am 
talked about and treated in some senses pedestalized is so different from like the ways in which I'm also I mean simultaneously like reviled or like punished um or even like within like um the context of like the queer interpersonal I love the cognitive dissonance it requires for one for people to believe that I am um some sort of like beautiful transcendent like queer creature and also like simultaneously not think that I'm worthy of like protection or friendship or resources or mm-hmm. all of these things right to to um or even kinship right it's just I think that I think it's one of the things that like rips like rips my mind apart that I can in one space be almost worshipped for like the aura that I have in in a completely different space two minutes later um on the other side of partition, I I could be chased down the street, such pursued by a group of men. I like a group of men who won't wish me violence for no reason other than my very existence is somehow an affront to them. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't think that there is any any reconciling it. I write about like all of this a lot, and I'm tra- and I'm still trying to figure out what I think about what role attractiveness or feeling attractive like this is like distinct from the point of like the point of violence necessarily but like also not because um, as we know um, especially within like I mean within wider communities yeah it's called the halo effect where um, people perceive people who are like who are more conventionally beautiful as more intelligent and kinder it's um, rather um, we know that to not be true it's an established (laughs) phenomenon but I think about that and I think about I think about um what my own relationship with beauty is or um or with my own like attractiveness and ultimately these things don't matter right for example when i was talking to i was talking to my friend this playwright yesterday and we were talking about these things right i was like i was like i feel so dislocated from any sense of like my own attractiveness and i feel like it's getting worse as i get older not better (laughs) Right, you like know, you're not actually growing into your skin. Yeah, I'm not growing into my skin. I'm like, I'm like scraping my way out of it. Mm. And and I was thinking about that. And I was thinking it's one of those things where ultimately it obviously doesn't fucking matter in some sort of higher level um, order, in some sort of profound sense. What I look like, right, is not what I have to give. It's not my gift. It, it cannot be my gift, even if. I mean, and I talk about what I look like, sort of like my like um, handsomeness or the lack thereof, as um, as distinct necessarily from um, adornment. But again, everything's in, like entwined. But I was like, actually, it doesn't matter. But doesn't mean I doesn't mean I feel that way, <laughs> right? right? Doesn't mean that this isn't this isn't like a thing I obsess over. And, and it like, doesn't mean that you don't discount or disregard the currency that your beauty might might have as well. Yeah, and how right? to how to use it, and that's a complicated thing, as well as like I I won I want to I want people not to care what I look like or how big my biceps yeah, are. I want, I want them to but, know. Yeah, my but brain. I also want to be like I want Desired. to be because I, I want wanted. to like I think that simultaneously people either people either want to. And I, I envy people who are so secure in themselves that they don't. But people either want the standard of beauty, um, people who aren't unconventionally like beautiful or like too queer or like too femme want the standard of beauty to be reevaluated mm-hmm. um, for shallow reasons, which I, sh- I mean shallow in some sense. For reasons that are more superficial in some sense, they want um, the standard of beauty to be readjusted, or they want themselves person um, personally to move towards that standard of beauty, or for. Um, for more deeper and meaningful reasons, right? If you think about um, XXL, for example, and what mm. I wrote with regards to what happens... Um, I've got it here. Yeah, yeah. with what happens 
um, in a space like XXL. For me, going there was already a compromise. I didn't want to be in this club. I, do, I don't want to be in a space like that where I will feel not valued, ignored. And um, and ultimately, I feel like these things, when people talk about them, like it's almost like a woe is me, no one finds me attractive, which is like, yeah, I mean like woe is me, no one finds me attractive. <laughs> um, which is like, which is like, fine again i think that like perhaps in some like yes obviously like that might lead to scenarios in which like you are lonely and that is like in itself like a terrible thing but i suppose the problems with um the problems with the space like xxl are that not that it's simply a case of not being deemed attractive but it's all of the corollary that happens once you don't fit a certain standard of masculinity or beauty right it's all of the violences that will occur afterwards and the violence is imposed both by the community and outside the community and ultimately who gets to who gets to stay in a space and who gets um who's welcome in a space and who's um frozen out of it well it's like policing desire exactly right it polices desire it, it, it polices want Yes. And obviously, femininity. Yes, but, like, see, the thing is, right, I think that a lot of people try to allude to the fact, a lot, some of the criticisms I received and some of the support for the owner were that this was merely a case of a dress code, right? Like there, right. Are, there are, there are, there are part, not to mention that dress codes have been, like, racist and misogynistic for, for like, the for history time, of yeah. the world, right? But, um... That it was mainly a dress yep. code, right? Like, like, and I even I had friends arguing with me that this was just a dress code. Many, many friends, not just one or two. Many people being like, "Well, you know, like I kind of understand, like it's just a dress code." I was like, "This has never been about just a dress code, right? This has always been about an attempt to police the boundaries of masculinity and decide who deserves what based on their conformity to this masculinity." Mm-hmm. So something that was said after I wrote this article for days, something that was said online in the comment section. But something that, like, a really angry polemic that was released after I'd written this piece by the owner was, like, this angry, angry diatribe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He said that, like, he basically didn't fucking care what anyone thought and that, like, that, like, Exocal has always been a club for men, men. Yeah. who want men, <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. Which, which Men who want men. Sure. And also that, like, people can take their heels and shove them up their asses. Now, I tried to explain to another friend who told me that they didn't think that it was like... I called it wickedly violent, and my friend said that they didn't think called it was particular. Called it what? called it wickedly violent, which I right. think is quite a camp way of describing something. But of I was course. Quite, it's a time right. <laughs> um, but I did think it was violent, and I think um, a lot of the comments for me really solidified why this was never about a dress code, because so in the comment section, someone wrote, yeah, if I wanted to see men mince around in heels, mm. I'd go to G.A.Y., which for me is like, that. that is the shit that we hear before we are beaten up, right? That is the right. shit that we hear before, like, people call us fags on public transport. That is the shit that we hear before people in are made Soho. homeless. Like, right. in so I got called a faggot in Soho <laughs> yeah, recently because yeah. my shorts were too short. I'm, like, not that I've worn those shorts since. But we know that's an impossibility, yeah, right? Mean, that they're yeah. too short. I mean, I know, Can right? they be too short? No! <laughs> shorts can't be too short. Like, let me live. Thank you. <laughs> live. And they're, like, vintage, they're like, vintage, like, Yannick Noah, 1978, like, cock sportif, like, tan. Shorts. They Those were the everything. <laughs> they were everything. It's never about the dress code. It's about attempts to police the boundaries of what might be considered masculine, and then attribute um, safety and resource based on that, right? And value based on that. And if you look at what he said about 
what kind of trans men he'd let into the club fully transitioned yeah. what, does what does that mean, mean? Yeah, what does that mean <laughs> right well so what we're talking about and, and what this situation uncovers is this essentializing obviously of men men are this way women are this way this is feminine that is masculine um and this comment in particular we obviously understand and in some ways i think what you write about it and how you reflect upon it helps give us the language to help talk about why it's upsetting in ways we couldn't the comment about the dress code, that it's just a dress code, isn't that designed to just shut down the conversation because they're unable to go further into that? They don't want to delve further than it being a dress code. And if so, where does the energy come from within you to have those conversations with people who are so easily able to reduce something as big as what happened to XXL to simply the dress code? Oh God, this isn't even shade. But I think that like when people say that it is a dress code. They are either being intellectually dishonest or intellectually limited. <laughs> right? Um, this isn't, no, this isn't, this is actually just a tea. Like, if you say that, it, like, like, it's yeah. like, it's like a policy, yeah. right? A policy is not, you cannot just like justify something on the grounds of it being a policy akin to something else. It's like, it's like, it's like if a supermarket doesn't let in black people, um, you, would you say that that's, that's just a policy? Because I feel like, I feel like not that it's like a, the last frontier, but I feel like it's like, it always takes, especially when you're talking to a certain kind of like white person, it always takes bringing it to, to the grounds of something they are truly ashamed about, which is like hundreds of years of racial like impropriety <laughs> to like impropriety. Let's let's let's, let's keep Such it a PG. Generous in, <laughs> right? No idea. Uh, racial impropriety, but like just because something it, like the justification on the grounds of something being a policy parallel. Not all policies have equal value, right? Yeah, yeah, not yeah. all door policies. Well, I think for example, what they're think, saying like, is for that example, like, like Savage often jokes about not like letting people in in grey t-shirts. And I don't think that they've actually ever prevented anyone from going in a grey t-shirt. But the reason, and someone tried to liken this dress code to XXL not letting people in in feminine clothing. And I had to point out that like context is key, right? Mm-hmm. Prima facie, they're both just dress codes. But contextually, one contributes to the marginalization, the continued marginalization of a group of people um, who are already at risk of violence and who continue to face violences. And one simply does not. One takes aim at like boring Clapham gays. Yeah. And that's just the tea. Yeah. Oh, one is trying to encourage people to push the boundaries of like of like the heteronormativity. And one is one is trying to convince people that there is something wrong with them. Right, right, right. Right? Yeah. God, put on some mesh at least, please. You said in the Dazed article, gay culture is endemically fixated on the masculine. You can see it in the celebration of Tom of Finland or the use of Greco-Roman god imagery in circuit party and club advertising, a thinly veiled attempt to create some pseudo-spiritual link to a heavenly revisionist antiquity. I mean, I was flat out. <laughs> uh, me being How pretentious in <laughs> print. Hashtag pretentious in print. Pretentious in print. Um, it's beautiful. That's. I mean, one. It's searing, and it's beautifully accurate. Thank you. That's no. That is that is very high praise. <laughs> so when I say that gay culture is endemically hyper, like fixated on the hypermasculine, I feel like. Um, and I say gay, not queer culture, because I feel like a lot of times people refer to things as queer when they mean, they just mean gay. They mean limited to like the realm of the gay man. Tom, of Fi- like there is this sort of like, there's this sort of perceived radical, like people talk about Tom of Finland as if it was like the most radical um, 
I mean, I guess in some sense, at its, sense, time, it at its time, in some yeah. senses, it was radical. But even from its very time, it was already whitewashed and it was already homofascistic and it was already obsessed with um, with the with the police and it was obsessed with the military and it was obsessed with the masculine values. But at and, its essence, and, Tom of Finland is just a reflection of what was already happening on the streets. Yes. So in its essence, it isn't radical at all. Exactly, right? Yeah. When people talk about Tom of Finland now, I feel like there's so little critical engagement with what it means to celebrate Thomas Finland now for queer people of colour, right? Like, to be making Thomas Finland biopics without any interrogatory, like, sort of gaze, to think about these things so uncritically as a product of their time. My God, if someone tells me that someone was a product of their time one more time, I will, <laughs> I will strangle them. <laughs> Churchill was a product of his time. Churchill was an unrepentant fucking racist, right? <laughs> like, call a spade a fucking spade. Yeah. And, like, and so this valorization, this aesthetic, has been, like, bo- like blindly borrowed from... Whenever Thomas Finland was popular, what like seventy, seven, like se- yeah. but it's been blindly borrowed, um, and like it's still celebrated now. And it's not like this was just. It's not like we've learnt from that. Or like circuit party advertising, we oh. party advertising, yeah. all of it. Um, ha- like it's all like, and I have some of this imagery right because I think it's so much easier to demonstrate, like to actually prove the point. Oh, like, the, look at this, Tom the, Mi- the Michelangelo. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's the it's the Michelangelo's like David. It's like the Michael. It's like it's like the the creation of like the creation of man. Like all of that. Like it's all of these like white muscly gays. Mm-hmm. Um, in like in like sometimes in, like, Latin. Skimpy. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. In, in like in like skimpy. Sometimes a little yeah. brown. Yeah. 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 In like skimpy. Um, outfits to reveal their musculature and you know and that link right that link between suggesting that this is what this is what we if we are all created in the image and likeness of God this is right? what we look like yeah. if this is what we look like yeah. this is what God looks like yeah. and this is what this is what the proliferation of his image and and of perfection is and yeah. it's so Boring and tiring. And also, and it's, this doesn't. That this. I've been to circuit, right? Yeah. I went begrudgingly, but I went, and I've never in my life felt more uncomfortable in a space than at the circuit pool party. I just felt like. I mean, I have a good physique. I was wearing great swim trunks, but the. I have just never felt like so brainless. Yeah, I. I, I don't and, know, and, and it, it's not. I just. And I feel like different people reckon with their queerness in different ways. And for some of these people, this is how they reckon with their queerness, right? To to create to to create a masculinity that is as approximate, you know, like as like mm, Bald, like mm. like Baldwin talks about, like the white homosexual is basically upset that for this one thing, <laughs> for this one thing, yeah. he would have these spoils of white supremacy. But for this one thing, he's denied his full prize. Yeah, right. And that, and this desire to create this approximate masculinity, this 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 thing where, like, you know, um, we might get, we might like to fuck each other, but like, you know, like, look at us, we're real men, like, yeah, like, yeah. like Mark Ames, the owner of, of XSL, said, we're real men, we're men who want real men, yeah, um, which is just a consolation prize, because in my opinion, there is nothing redemptive about masculinity. Please, people, mm. save yourself from it, right? 
and I, later I'm going to say that like it's not it's it's a it's like a retconning of this history right because they're trying to suggest they're trying to hark back to this sort of this time of pederasty and this like mm. this like sort of hazy because golden hazy age. exactly yeah. this hazy golden age cruising on the docks hey, 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 of New York hey, hey, and yeah, yeah exactly that Midler and, and saunas, go farther yeah. back to that right you go even farther back there's like this like hazy like neoclassical sort of like Greco-Roman like idea that like yes these men wore these robes and these men had rippling abs and these men all look like Michelangelo's David and these men all fucked each other it's like it's and and it becomes even more ridiculous when you interrogate it because you're just like obviously no version of this history ever existed Uh, and like creating this imagery which tries (laughs) to solidify this imagery like it's it's not it's not true and if it makes you more comfortable yeah. trying to and the reason I call it a pseudo spiritual link is because I don't think that like people are necessarily actually asserting that this is what it was like but in the back of their heads right like a lot of their like foundational premises on what like it is to be a beautiful perfect man comes from looking at Michelangelo's David comes from looking like the creation of man comes mm. from all of these like references that have been thrust upon them it comes from looking at like like Thomas Finland this acculturation of like this like hyper masculinity and my problem part of my problem with this hyper masculinity is that again I say in the piece is that everyone in the gay community wants a slice of that hyper masculinity right even if they don't want to be hyper masculine themselves right so right. the twinkiest mm. the twinkiest um, gay men the twinkiest gay men um, the like most feminine um, drag queens the, the like the like fishiest drag queen even they crave the beatifying proximity of the hypermasculine, yes. right? It is a validation of is mm-hmm. a validation of their own beauty, is a validation of their own value to be desired. So by then, that. okay, fine, accepted, heard. How are you interrogating your own desire in that respect? Because presumably you haven't come through the world completely inoculated from God, the beatifying wish. effects of <laughs> proximity to hypermasculinity, as you say. So, I mean, a lot of my writing is not just me evangelizing, right? It is me working through what I think about the world. And, right, the thing is, I'm constantly re-evaluating my relationship. That's with a beautiful my, insight, uh, by the way. Oh, thank you. I, I don't think people, and I, until this moment, until you said it, I didn't either, that that our art might be the way of figuring out what it is we think ourselves. Yeah, and I and I don't have all of the answers. God knows I don't have any of the answers, but I have the questions and I have the, the means by which to f- to figure out who I am. And thankfully, I think that I have this gift and I can use my writing to do that. Um, but that's like, and that's not to say that I don't find the hyper-masculine attractive, but I think that I also simultaneously find it repulsive. Um, right. <laughs> but also to suggest that I'm like, I feel like my, I'm constantly, right? Constantly reevaluating both through thought and through conversation and through discussion and reading my relationship, not only to the hypermasculinity, but to my own queerness. My own, and the boundaries of my queerness stretch so much further than the hypermasculine. Right? right, right. Like I I love so much more than what is delineated into like man or woman or is delineated into like attractive or unattractive. I think that I have my desires stretch so much broader than that. And I mm. think that sometimes our indoctrination is front and center and sometimes it's in front of us and sometimes we are easily caught unawares but i i honestly don't think that my desire is as flat as that mm. anymore mm. you know i think that there's there's so much more to it 
by reading and by writing and just by and by experience and by like asking myself the difficult questions and I think that that is what I am doing to interrogate this and I don't and I think that one of the things that people often think is I want I want places like XXL to shut down or I want people to stop like I compromise right and a lot of what I was trying to explain in in like this piece and then some other things I'm working on is the fact that like I might be here like preaching to you and like trying to like give some sort of like theoretical framework and some sort of interesting way of like looking at this but at the end of the day like I compromise right I compromise to be found attractive mm, um, mm, I'll, I'll mm. like I like I take off I'll take off my wig I'll think do I want to wear that <laughs> right, to the club right. this night and I'm constantly fighting do I want to have sex tonight or not yeah. <laughs> do I, exactly which is often yeah. a question of do I am I going to wear this lipstick tonight or not right right, right. Um, and it's so hard when you're in the middle of it right when you've made the decision to stick to your guns to choose what you think is beautiful over what you think is desirable mm. um, oof yeah, what you think is beautiful over what you think is desirable. When you're at that point and when you're in a club and, like, your friends are all, like, off-macking on, like, all of these boys and you're, like, standing there alone and, um, and like, feeling undesirable and uncomfortable, it takes everything in you, right? And it's not a comfortable process. It's not, it's not one of even feeling vindicated because the overwhelming emotion is not one of vindication, but it is um, aloneness and sticking to your guns and trying to... And trying to be, trying to live, trying to live your politics and be nobler in a respect, I don't think comes with all of the prizes that, I think that there are things about it that that are to be prized. There's a peace to be made with the way you walk through the world, but I don't think that it, it will, it will, there will not always be a eureka moment of, I'm glad I, I'm glad I chose to be the person who I am and not the person who I th- know would be wanted i don't think there always is and i don't want people to think that like if they go out and they like that's really interesting and they put on their ma- but sometimes all we yeah. ever really hear about is the self-actualization right yes that but like if you just be yourself you'll be happy but i yes, think you're but how that's many people, but people have been telling me this for so long right and i've fiercely tried to be myself for so long but this like 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 as laverne cox quoted um laverne cox quoted um bell hooks right you know like that idea that there is a point in which you will be liberated and you will always feel good about your choices mm, i don't know yeah. if there is if there is that i think we're constantly crossing and recrossing the rubicon right there's no there's yeah. no <laughs> point at which and maybe there is maybe maybe someone will come along and they'll understand and they'll value me and then that will be the shining moment but i think that there are a lot more smaller moments of freedom within that. It's that's what getting that was what I was trying to get a bell hook said. Um, bell hooks in the bank. It's a practice of freedom, I suppose. Um, yeah, a practice of freedom. It's a practice, and a practice, and a practice is never necessarily um, smooth, and it doesn't. But this is not me. To, this is not for me to say that there are not that this does not come without its rewards. You know. No, of course. Um, no, of course. It does. Of course, and it does. There, and there is think, joy. Of course. Right? But it cannot always. But what you're doing is that. complicating the narrative, yeah. right, around this idea of authenticity of who we are, right? And yeah. because the dominant narrative again is be yourself, be yourself, be yourself, be yourself, be yourself. And I forget who said, but the most radical thing you can do is try to be yourself in a world that's asking you to be something else all the time. Um, 
And so I think that's refreshing actually to complicate that narrative to say, I am trying to be myself. I am trying to practice freedom yeah. in these and moments. Yeah, and I'm trying not to be, I'm trying ultimately not to be a hypocrite, not because, because A, I am definitely a hypocrite in many, in, in like in many scenarios we all are. Same. I, yeah. I compromise frequently. I compromise, I compromise to be found interesting. I compromise to be found attractive. I compromise to be found beautiful. I compromise, I compromise because I want people to think that I am better than I am. I compromise ultimately so that I am not lonely. But it is recognizing the fact that like, you can like self like I think that I'm a pretty fucking self-actualized person, right? <laughs> I'm trying to be who I am, and I'm constantly trying to be that person. But I, under all of that choice, is a pit of loneliness. And to think that, to think that like, um, ideological the ideological purity that comes from being yourself is like a cure <laughs> yeah. for all of the things of that ail not. you. Yeah. Like, honey, no, <laughs> no. But that doesn't mean that I don't think that this route, this route, however difficult it is, is worth it. Because isn't worth it? Because I think that it is, and I'm still trying to figure out why it's worth it. Because I know I know some of the reasons why it is, but the the totality of that, maybe I will never have an answer for. Right. Do you think that compromise is a type of violence? I think it is. Um, I think it is a kind of violence. I mean, I think the kind of compromise I refer to that the altering of self. I think that. When I leave my house some days, I have, um, there is a calculus you perform, right? And I know that Pansy, Pansy, even Pansy Bliss talks about that, like that very public checking of yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, I call it the calculus I perform before I leave the house, right? Do I wear the matching um, marigold yellow Calvin Klein denim outfit with the yellow beret? Very, very fab. <laughs> um, do I wear that? Yeah. Um, or do I put on sweatpants and a t-shirt? Right. Sweatpants and a, like even a mutant sweatpants. Like the calculus I'm talking about is how uncomfortable am I willing to be made today? How willing to be harassed? How willing to be gawked at? How willing to be sighed at? Um, pointed at? Stared at? Laughed at? Am I willing to today? Right? Um, and like the answer to that question is never. I'm willing to be harassed. The answer to the question <laughs> that the, right, the answer right. to that question is some days I want to be. Me. I want to be the fullness of me, mm-hmm. right? And other days, it is, uh, it is. I want to fly under the radar as much as possible. Whether or not that works is a question because, like, I'll be wearing the most plain outfits well, and, I'm peop- and still palpably, like, you can people can. It's like people can smell it's the queerness energy, on yeah. me, right? <laughs> you know, it has, it it has like a half life. Like it doesn't just go away. And, yeah, it's fucking weird. Um, and so I think that I think that that. The mental strain of that alone is already a kind of violence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it might not be a big violence, but it's, it is, it is especially the daily compromises are little violences with a cumulative effect. Yeah, I'll tell you what you said. You said compromise is ultimately a word for the little violences we inflict upon ourselves and call survival. The little incursions we accept for fear of conflict or bigger violences. Yeah. I mean... Um, and that I know you're talking about the queer trans non-binary experience but I just find that to be so widely applicable I think it is which probably speaks to the system right the world that we live in that 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 is resonant for so many of us I mean I it'd be hard for me to say that I struggle with the same questions about my own queerness right because I think 
I I don't think I'm that left of queer. Right? I think I'm very kind of palatable gay, right? I'm probably a, a gay man, and people accept that for the most part. So I can't say that I think in the same way, will this outfit cause undue attention? Although in summer, it's much different when I decide to wear as little as possible. Um, but... Um, but there are thoughts about what I want to say and do I want to speak my mind and in those those little compromises that we make in public situations when it's like, actually, I'm not going to kick the big white bear today. I'm going to keep my mouth shut or um, or am I co-opting what you've said? I don't think you are co-opting okay. it. I think that it's... it's <laughs> I'm just trying to apply it's, your it's, beautiful language to I my life. I think it's applicable in situations um, and one very obvious one is when someone says something racist Mm, mm. in a context which is predominantly white but your work environment Mm. um, or like um, or you're with with a group of white people you don't know very well or if you're just somewhere where someone makes some sort of statement which is hurtful in some respect um, either it be racist, transphobic, misogynistic and the way in which we accept that right Mm, mm. because we don't want to start a fight because we don't want to be we don't want to make it worse. We don't want to, don't want to be that the guy, capital we T, capital G. We don't want to be, exactly right. <laughs> we don't want to be um, the problem. Mm. I think is another, it's just another, it's just another way in which um, minorities often compromise, mm. right? So to close, I want to talk about the romance in your language. <laughs> because I think that when you write, even about the hard stuff, there is a beauty in a romance that you seem to weave Thank you. And I don't know how you do it, and I don't know how to talk about it, right? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't have a, a specific question. <laughs> but I suppose I just wanted to hear you ruminate on what you think is beautiful and perhaps what you think is romantic. Um, I don't, what do I think is beautiful? Um, I think that what I said earlier um, about how um, I think that all speech is a kind of incantation um and i think that um all words are magical words all all words can can summon can summon um and disperse phenomena and i and i'm and i'm interested in that and i'm interested in um i'm interested in what words can con- what words can conjure up emotionally and um spiritually and sometimes like sometimes i like the um it's what my my literature teacher who's one of the most influential people in my life i met eight years ago he would call them sort of the oral so a-u-r-a-l the oral imagination of a phrase Mm, can mm. do right because it's so much more than the words on the page it is is um and it's so much more, more than the sentiment sometimes the very sound of a thing can can create magic in and of itself um what do I think is romantic? Love, I think, um, which is an obvious answer, but I think that... But you believe um, in romance, I think. I well. do, yeah. I do. I, I think that I think that I believe wholeheartedly in... I believe in love. I believe in um, redemption. I believe in self-sacrifice, which I think um, necessarily um, comes from love. I, I truly believe that um, that love is the most radically transformative thing that we have, we can experience, that we can give to other people. And I think that all of all of my writing I think flows from flows from that, um flows from that at that point in the that point. Like everything comes from that. Like love is love must be radically transformative to be love. 
um, and I think that that's that's what I, I I I believe in. I think that that's what moves me, and I think that um, love is love is magic. And like the and I'm and I'm interested in like how um, how love um, transcends distance and time and space, like an interstellar. You know, the fact the idea that love is like something akin to gravity. Mm. Um, you know, it is a force to be felt. Um, like it acts on objects far away from each other and near each other, and it it is um, inexplicable and yet at the heart of everything that like makes us who we are. And I think that that's is at the heart of what I'm trying to convey, right? The magic, the magic of love, and the magic of living, and um, and the magic of trying to explain that magic. Mm. So yeah, I think that that's. It's not very, it's very waffly answer, I'm not sure it means anything, but... Uh, you, I'm um, in a trance. That's beautiful. I ask all my guests the same question. What do you hope for? Um, what do I hope for? For me personally, fulfillment, love. I hope that I can be a better person than I am today. And I hope for that every single day. Um, and I hope that I can be kinder. Um, and like live with more authenticity I guess um, um, I hope that I can learn to um, accept beauty less as currency in lieu of character um, to be less vain I hope I can be less vain I hope that I, I hope that I find and I continue to find meaning in it or I don't know I hope that love somehow I, think, I hope that our love for each other finds a way to save the world. Otamari Guabadia is a writer whose work is published regularly on international platforms like Dazed, ID, and Huck. You'll find links to some of my favorite pieces in the show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass, busy-being-black beats. Ashe. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.